Hello and welcome to the Last Alliance University of Alberta Tolkien Society podcast. Join us this year as we follow the adventures of two small and very important ring bearers in The Hobbit and the Fellowship of the Ring. Haldir had some really good thematic quotes. I solidly like the irony of Aragorn at the very beginning of the Lothlorien chapter being the kind of person who's like, well, you're being led by me now, so you're going to have to do without hope. I'm like, Aragorn, hope is your entire personality. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We must do without hope. Like, no, you're still there. Like, yes, one of Gandalf's powers is also to give hope, but literally, they named you after that. So there was that. That was fun. Also, really exciting to talk about Galadriel and Tolkien. Um, Taurus Galavant is just beautiful. That's it. I really liked uh, Miramir, especially how like mysterious it is, and like he just blots out like normal images, and you only see what's really, really important in it. Um, I also really like Nimrodel, and just the entire song that Legolas sings, and how it gives you this you into like this very important cultural moment into like the lives of the elves and like elven culture of like going over the sea. Yeah. Thank you. Um I want to know more about Uther Andy. <laughs> about what? Uncle Andy. Oh he just owned a rope making place. That's it. Just I feel like he's got an interesting Backstory, right? His name is Andwise Gamgee, and he owned a roadblock in the Highfield. Oh. How do you know that? I know how I know that. Okay, so that really bad translation of The Lord of the Rings, one of the mistakes they got wrong was, like, when Sam says that, like, his uncle Andy or whatever, like, owned a roadblock over by Tyfield. Um, the guy didn't understand that a rope walk meant a place where you make rope, so he translated it as, like, a rope bridge. But, no, part of Sam's family is rope makers. That's why he likes rope so much. He's <laughs> very aware of its practical uses. So, no, Gamgee yeah, motif. Just... Um, question, actually, I'll ask later. Well, well, I'll my point. So, <laughs> I guess I'm just going to say something about it's really interesting how Galadriel is the most personable of the dwarves when she was also literally there when the whole strike started. Yeah, so she knew how much of a dick Dingle was. I mean, she was in the room. <laughs> but also, it's impressive that she is this forgiving when it's not just hearsay to her. That's good. Like, both sides of her family come from the Dwarf Elf War. Well, actually, no. No, actually, On the other hand, Galadriel knows what it is to be forgiven. 
given that she fostered with uh, Pickle and Lillian, even though she was marginally involved in the counseling. At the very least, like her and her brothers felt real guilty about it. Almost like an elf habit, feeling guilty about things. Yeah, okay, but most of the time they deserve it. Some of the time they deserve it. <laughs> Mm. I remember what my other point was that I wanted to say. So, like, I really like how, because I, I'm going to be gone by the time you talk about Galadriel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really like how Galadriel is, like, peak fairy queen for Tolkien. Um, and in particular, that interplay between, like, really powerful regal elemental eternal figure and like maiden um reminded me a lot of the elf queen from smith of Wind major mm-hmm. yeah actually like a lot of the descriptions of Loch Lorraine in general remind me of smith of Wind major because this is Tolkien's fairy but i might be here when we get to that <laughs> Okay, so first point, I don't want to dwell too long on Miramir, but I said that if someone brought it up, we would talk a little bit about Miramir. Yay! Do you want to start us off, Justin? Uh, we just find it. <clears throat> yeah, like, there's very much a, this sense of, there's something much deeper and much more like, important about Miramir than just what this tale gives it. It really reminds me of Gene Wolfe, actually, and how he tends to, like, insert just passing glances to something, and those things are actually really, really important and have a very significant history, but you see none of this, because the tale is going to go elsewhere, and you have to kind of, like, glean from what everyone else says about these sort of things. I wish we stayed longer in Miramir and in Moria, like I said last week. I could just make this, like, Moria book study and just talk about the dwarves for, like, three weeks straight. I... Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really liked that... Um, it, so it kind of confirms that in the Song of Durin, something, it, something far more than just, like, very pretty metaphorical language is going on. Because, mm-hmm. like, with the Song of Durin... Um, you can read it as, like, you know, Durin just looked in a lake, and it was night time, so stars were appearing in the sky, whoa, look, a crown! But the actual, like, inexplicable, sort of magical nature of Miramir sort of supports that idea that there was more going on Mm -hmm. in that. Well, even the fact that they're, like, in a high mountain pass, and it's a dead still lake, mm-hmm. which, like, if you've ever been in a lake in a high mountain pass, that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> Usually those places are very windy. The other thing I kind of want to draw attention to is the fact that, of all the fellowship, Gimli pulls aside Frodo. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a realization that Frodo needs to see this on Gimli's part. And it might be just that, like, oh, we're getting a bit of, like, Frodo's character as, like, the lore master of this group. thoughtful hobbit, I guess. But also, like, maybe Gimli realizes that Frodo would realize, like, 
the almost like religious significance this has yeah. in this place, as opposed to nearly everyone else in the in the fellowship, except maybe Sam. But there's also so there's also a kinship between Gimli and Frodo by way of Bill and Bilbo. That's true. That I think them being the sons of the concept of family. Yeah. Yeah, well, not even come see this Kool-Aid. Come see like one of the oh, most yeah. important religious sites. Yeah. Yeah. No. Gimli's just like um, speaking of because we adopted Bilbo, you're adopted too, so you're a dwarf now. Come along. <laughs> and he's got Bilbo's neat girl shirt, mm-hmm. and Gimli's like, oh, like he thinks that's so great. Mm-hmm. Okay. Alternate theory. Um, Gimli just chose the person closest in height to him. Frodo's the tallest of the hobbits. It's just like, well, you're closest to a dwarf sideways. For now. For now. Like, before Entra. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, Gimli comes back and sees Marion Pippin and is like, never mind, I have new favorites. <laughs> so, Marion Pippin are going to be six inches taller than Frodo. Cool. So there's, so there's a real interesting connection with uh, Lothlorien. Mm-hmm. Like, we've talked about the relationship of elves and stars and how that has a lot to do with the past, right? Mm-hmm. Like, elves and stars, the stars are, you're seeing the light from many, many light years ago, you know? Um, which kind of reflects how elves live in the past. Um, and it's really interesting because here you have Lothlorien, where the past lives as the present. There's a lot of interesting remarks on that. And I think that also parallels nicely with the way Mirror Mirror, like, permanently reflects something that is no longer there. Like, my theory is that it reflects the stars as they were when Durin lived. Okay. That's personally Like, it's a window into the past. Yeah. Yes. But I was actually seeing some major contrast between um, Moria and Loch Lorien in that Loch Lorien is past living in the present, whereas Moria is fate to live. Like, like um, the standing stone at um, Kelebzeran, I was thinking, uh, like that, that meant quite a bit to me. It also spoke of kind of religious significance, you know, like the place this memorial thing. Um, but it's, it's faded and scratched. Like a memorial of that nature for that to be scratched, I was like, oh, so sad. Um, standing in direct contrast, at least for me, to Loch Lorien. I mean, in a way, like it's interesting because the dwarves build things out of stone, and stone is really enduring. So it also just goes to show how ancient that thing mm-hmm. is, that it's been that weather. But again, it's an interesting contrast to Loch Lorien, where Lothlorien is kind of both hypernatural and unnatural. Like, it isn't natural, quote-unquote, for trees to be frozen in time. Which is... 
countries are frozen in time. Like, they tend not to be like higher. So, Nimrodo. <laughs> okay, I want to talk about Nimrodo. Yeah, I want you to talk about Nimrodo because you know the story. Yeah, so um, the story of Agnarch and Nimrodo is um, also in Unfinished Tales. I only know a bit of it. Um, what I find really interesting about it is Amroth and Nimrodo is another love story. And what I find interesting about it is that Amroth and Nimrodo here seem to have this cultural significance to the elves of Lothlorien, the way that Baron and Luthien would have written. That's their that that's their like cultural touchstone story, um, and uh, who Amroth was is debatable um, because he's only ever mentioned in this one story. But things kind of I think in the story itself he's actually Galadriel and Kelborn's son. Okay. Uh, but because he's not mentioned anywhere else, uh, people are like, well, Galadriel and Kelborn didn't have a son. So this is just an aberration, um, but there's not really any other explanation of who Amroth is, except I think maybe another prince of like the Noldor who is traveling with Galadriel's folk. Um, yeah, and Nimrodel is just really pretty. Um, she does end up getting lost, and I think it's the people of Athelion who are said to be partial. <laughs> or, well, maybe it's, I mean, it's, oh, yeah. It, it is. It's, yeah, it's yeah, Prince yeah. Imrahil. No, that's, Prince Imrahil is from Dol Amroth. Dol Amroth, right. Yeah. So, I don't know if the people of Athelion are said to be related to Nimrodel, yeah. but the people of Dol Amroth are related to Amroth. Yeah. yeah. Are specifically, say, yeah. there was, yeah, I wrote that down, but this is relevant later because, uh, like, Prince Imrahil of Dal Amroth has Elvish blood. Yeah, has Elvish blood very, very distantly. But it's because, like, Amroth and his retinue of elves settled in Dal Amroth for quite a while as they were waiting for Nimrodel, and at some point, someone got with a human. Yeah. It happened, and we know very little about it because it's not as significant as, like, the big ones. So yeah, it's really interesting to me that it acts as this cultural touchstone. And I think the best explanation is that Galadriel and Kelborn did actually have a Nip Because that would explain why it's not just sad, it's like so memorialized in Galadriel's own country. To me it feels a lot like one of those county folk songs in like an old, old part of England. Yeah. Even the fact that like it borrows some of its really important death metaphor. Yeah. But also here it's like a significant like cultural piece for the elves of like going to the West. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. There is an alternate history of Amroth. Um, and it's that he's a Sindar. And his father was killed during the Battle of Gagorlad, so that's the battle of the like that made the Dead Marshes. Um, and then Amroth became the last of the ruling Sindar over Lorien, which is what I thought, and I'm sure we talked about this. But like, 
in in one version of this, like Lorien had like a like a, a succession of Sindarin rulers, of which Enoch yeah. was the last, and, and then Galadriel Hillborn came in after. Yeah, it's just it's because it's all tied up in the complicated history of Galadriel and Celeborn and who they are, it's hard to tell which is which. And also because I didn't read it really closely when I was putting together the chronology. I just know it's there. Mm -hmm. I was going to actually bring unfinished tales. So anyhow, yeah, that's that's a what strikes me more is that they named um, the stream after the person. Um, you know, like there's no stream called Luthien. Yeah. Um, so, given yes, cultural touch, cultural touchstone, but naming. I can't really think of other examples at the top of my head. But, it, but it's unusual to name a place after a person. Sure. Just kind of odd considering that it's not a thing in human history. Yeah, that's not human history. And there is, so like, they did name um, uh, that, like, part of Osirian became known as the land of the dead that lived because we were living there and then lived there. It's just like, that land with that history is gone. Like, that's been drowned. And I think in Tolkien, especially for elves, it would be inappropriate to name something after something that didn't have a direct connection to it. Like, it would, I feel like it would be an insult both to the stream and to Luthien if you named, like, a random stream that Luthien never visited yeah. Luthien. If that makes any sense. Especially if but. there's elves that remember these sorts of events still around, right? Yeah. But on the other hand, I think this makes more sense because Nimrodel and the stream are, like, their histories became intertwined, mm-hmm. and now they call the stream Nimrodel. It's also, like, the valency of like of importance for Nimrodel is a lot less than like Luthien. Yeah. And like it's hard to name things after such big cultural imports unless it's like a very specific like national or like cultural like place. But for like little folk tales or like little stories like this, everything gets named after. Them. I mean, I think like Ryan does have a good point that that's how things work in this world, but that isn't really what we see with the elves. Well, it works for humans, like, in this world, right? The elves are a very different type of elf. Okay. Um, thoughts on the song, though, that don't have to do with the history of who Nimrodel and Amrok would be? I Let's find take it... a radical death of the author approach and analyze this for what it's doing here with no extra context. It's in iambic 8686. Oh my god, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I meant thematically. <laughs> um, it really 
give this idea. It's like the first major thing we've seen of mentioning like sailing out to the west. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's been dropped before, but we never really see like the impact it has on the people who are sailing out to the west and people they leave behind. Yeah. It's also really interesting that it's cut short. Yes. The place it's cut short mm -hmm. is interesting. Um, yes. It's also interesting yeah. that, just to kind of tie it back to what we're talking about, it doesn't actually, like the song itself does not clarify whether Nimmerdell is named after the stream or the stream is named after her. That's true. Right? Like, the first time you have the name is the stream. First you have Beside the Falls of Nimmerdell, and then you have Lost of Yorms Nimmerdell. Right? So it may also be that, she, that the stream wasn't named after her, or she was named after the stream. There, on the other hand, there's a really interesting thing going on with like how she relates to the stream. So. Beside the falls of Nimmerdell, by water clear and cool, her voice is falling silver low into the shining pool. You have this um, implication that, that this is kind of literal. Like, her voice literally fell and mingled with the voice of the river. And then you see in the descriptions of Nimmerdell the river, you have this double voice, like multiple singing voices coming from the river and intertwining with one another. Which is nuts. Like yeah, that's they're, they're very so nearly cool. the same person. River. And woman. Yeah. There's I think that's really interesting too in light of different river narratives in this case. Like, you do have in Tolkien, like, rivers that wash things clean of defilement, including the Nimrodel in this chapter. Um, you also have, like, rivers that wash people away. Um, you have, like, like, there's gonna be Boromir, spoiler alert, but with Boromir, you have that sense of something, like, dividing him from the river. With Nimrodel, you have this implication of, like, a woman drowning, which, if it reminds me of anything, it reminds me of Neonor. Mm -hmm. She throws herself into a river, and the river bears her away, and nobody knows to where or where she ends up or what happens to her. But yeah, there's a, like a physical literalization of Nimrodel's voice that's going on here. It has a lot of like naiad parallels. Yeah, it really does. Especially like you, you said, you can read this as if she drowned in the the pool. Yeah. And not just like as the thing directly says, like oh she wandered away and. Mm -hmm. And like when she's lost or whatever, how is she lost? <laughs> Also, like, this is really weird in light of, like, Goldberry, because mm -hmm. Goldberry is very definitely not an elf, but it's, like, weird to me that you have, like, elves who sort of become rivers, and also you have river naiads, like, actual ones. What if, what if Goldberry is Nimrodel, 
and just like weird conspiracy theory bullshit and she found <laughs> but also became a water spirit rob is shaking his head <laughs> she can now travel between all of the bodies of water she just meets, she, say, the she, bodies she, of water they're too far apart <laughs> no no she meets up with Olmo, and Olmo takes her across the sea <laughs> This is even, it. She can't even get there without going to the sea and then around. <laughs> but even then, probably. <laughs> no, but you still have to swim up upstream. Yeah. Yeah. Just wouldn't work out. So you had to go all the way down, and then all the way up. <laughs> and look what we found here. I love it. Other things that are interesting, like you pointed out, this is where we start to see that cultural thing of elves going to the sea, which is wild because Frodo hears the sea mm-hmm. in Karen Anoff mm-hmm. later in this chapter. Yeah. I mean, Frodo hears the sea all the time. <laughs> it's just this thing he does. It's just specific, but yes. <laughs> here you are in a forest several mountain ranges away from the sea, it's like the, one of the most unsea-like places you could be in, but it's so elvish that the sea is still everywhere. That said, he also hears the sea. Like we talked about this earlier, he hears it like in the forest. Is it like in the house of Tom Bombadil, or is it like in? The I'm trying to remember now. I've got it written down somewhere. It's somewhere in those chapters. But it's it's when he dreams. I think it is in the house of Tom Bombadil. It's when he dreams about Gandalf. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he dreams about Gandalf, but like, like the, the like before that, yeah, he dreams about like it's not the same night. No, I remember that. But even even so, like I think a dream is different than this. Like you say that it's several mountain ranges away, but you can literally see the river that leads to the sea. That's true. So it's several mountain ranges or one river away. <laughs> Which, again, is interesting because even though Lothlorien is frozen in time, you have the river that is forever flowing to the sea. Yeah. And, like, it's very elvish, you know? I'm making a really coherent point here. But there's always that implication that if you just step onto the river, you'll flow down to the sea and you'll leave Middle-earth. It's always going. Just can't yeah, get his nose out of mortal gas. He just thinks they're so cute. I mean, okay, like Ulmo's kind of an interesting point too, because in the Silmarillion, it's sort of implied or stated that like rivers' healing and sort of holy properties are because Ulmo still inhabits them. It's like like his power extends through all waterways, no matter what the direction. Yeah. But here, when you have Ulmo taken out of the picture, and he's probably still here in Tolkien's mind, but you have that healing aspect of rivers coming from different sources, mm-hmm. like in this case, partly from Nimrodel. Also, the Silver Lord, though. <laughs> yeah, the Silver Lord is also like a river that's mentioned here as being very particular. It's, it's, you can't drink from it. It's so cold at its source. Yeah, that was interesting. Clear. I was like, what do you mean it's too cold to drink from? Yeah. I, what? <laughs> Look, you can drink from literal glaciers. Drink the mountain streams, not gonna be that bad. It's just 
got shards of ice in it. If you tiny shards to impale your mouth. You'll just get a really bad brain freeze. Well, also it's winter. Yeah. And like drinking cold stuff in winter in like a free parka. Well, like parkas have been existing for a while. Like <laughs> drinking cold stuff does like lower your body temperature. It's true. Yeah. Okay, Tolkien might just be thinking about the logic of not drinking something cold outside. <laughs> okay, okay, moving on. <laughs> moving on to our next point. Um, elf dwarf racism discuss. <laughs> That's interesting because I was just looking at um, the discussion like... Um, Legolas ends his song and he's like... It is long and sad, and then when uh, Sauron came upon Lothroy and Lorien was about something the dwarves awakened evil in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Like immediately, Gimli is like, but the dwarves did not make the evil. It's like, I see where you're going. <laughs> you're not going to, to go there. And interestingly, like Legolas catches himself, or like catches himself, I don't know, but he say, I say not so. Yet evil came, and what I like in this chapter is how like how you see the evolution not only in like the Gimli Legolas relationship, but also like in Gimli being authorized to actually go to Kara's Galatron, or is it the later next chapter? I don't remember already. Um, and like breaking the law of no dwarves will ever step in Lorien unless dead. Um, yeah. And I really like chosen racism, um, because otherwise this law would not exist. But I like how like steps are taken away from that. Yeah, I also really like the scene between like the blindfolding scene where they fight about that. Yeah, because it's so symmetrical. Mm-hmm. It's so perfectly symmetrical. Like Gimli is like. Ah, I'm angry. This I don't want to be singled out. And Aragorn is like, we'll all do it. And then Legolas is like, I'm sorry, what? Or <laughs> <laughs> like two seconds ago, he was like, Gimli, just get over it. And then Aragorn is like, uh, Legolas, just get over it. <laughs> it's so perfectly symmetrical that way. Yeah, I like that scene too because you see Aragorn, like one of the things you see over the course of these two chapters too is Aragorn trying to dictate his own position, mm-hmm. right? Um, and mediating this conflict between Gimli and Legolas and the outside people. Mm-hmm. Like, Legolas were kind of reminded too over the course of this, even though they like him because he's an elf and are going to try and do their dealings through Legolas because he's an elf, um, he his name in Lothlorien doesn't carry the same weight as yeah. Aragorn's does, right? Um, so, whereas if Gandalf had shown up, Gandalf could just take care of all of that. Yeah. Legolas now is trying to navigate this position that really Aragorn needs to be navigating, and then ultimately does. It's also really interesting, like, one of the things that you notice is when they first, when Legolas first goes to climb a tree, um, and someone just, like, yells at him, he's like, oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what just happened? Like, you, you get that sense there that, like, all of a sudden, Legolas, who thus far has seemed kind of like he's almost invincible, right? Like, nothing really goes wrong for Legolas. 
Legolas. Legolas is afraid of a Balrog, but they're all afraid of a Balrog in Gandalf, everyone, so that's not like a statement from Legolas. Here, Legolas is like wrong-footed the whole time, even though he's technically maintaining power. And I thought that was really interesting because you suddenly get a sense of how like inexperienced he is as a person. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, like two things. One, Aragorn, like coming into his own. Coming into his own, but in a way that makes him very not Gandalf. Yeah. Just like going through this idea of like being blind, like the blindfolds and like, oh, you're being held. I'm just thinking of how Gandalf would resolve it. Not that way. way. But like the fact that Aragorn has like this very almost like martyr-like way of approaching this. Uh, The second thing is Legolas not only is like an outsider elf, but also like seems invisible. He's also like the crown prince, right? And just the way that the Lothlorien elves treat him, I have a feeling it's not just the fact that he's an elf, but all the fact that he's actually just royalty yeah. in this in this position. Like they're like they're like we have to be like respectful to him and go through him because he's the crown prince of Mirkwood, but also a baby. <laughs> <laughs> also, like <okay. laughs> he just shows up and they're like, oh boy, <laughs> okay. Okay, adding two things to that. One, yeah, the differences between, like, Aragorn and Gandalf and how they would handle this are really just very amusing. Because Gandalf is more like, he wills his way through things. Like, he'll strong-arm or sass his way through things. He's very much like an old man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And, like, the epitome of old men. You know that Gandalf in this situation would just be like, stop being idiots! Um, Fool of a dwarf! Put on the blindfold. Yeah, (laughs) the question is, he would either strong arm Gimli into putting on the blindfold without having to sacrifice the rest of the company, or he'd just strong arm the elves into letting Gimli buy. And both are equally probable. Um, Whereas Aragorn is the kind of leader who's like still part of the group Mm -hmm. and still like trying to show the group that he's still part of the group. Mm I, like, no way would Gandalf ever let himself be blindfolded. I was here when you were just babies. Yeah. <laughs> like, you can't hide my glory from me. personally from me. <laughs> I will stand here and fight every orc in Moria until she comes and leaves me here. there. <laughs> all done herself. I want two white horses. <laughs> humor too yeah. like now let us cry a flag on the stiff necks of elves like that is a funny <laughs> thing it's it's hilarious and it's infinitely funnier to say in front of these like really proud uppity guards of like like the proud nappy galadrim who have just been like yeah okay we're not really sure about any of you even aragorn like we know him but we're still gonna make him sleep in the other house we are only taking hobbits here yeah, and they're like, small and weak and a flag on all of you, and they're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> they're like, these things are clearly harmless, and like, probably Yvanna loves them, so we'll take them. Yeah. Um, but the, the uppiness of the guard elves fascinates me, right? Because just how much they love um, Lothlorien, right? That they will, that they would blindfold people rather than let them see it in order to protect it. Like that's 
That's pretty spectacular, you know? Like, I can't even think of, like, human civilization that were that proud of their city. You know, you can be proud of your city. <laughs> but to, to that extent, that's pretty spectacular. It's like Wakanda. No, it's just isolationism. Yeah. It's just isolationism. It's just Wakanda. They're, they're, they're proud of it. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah. I mean, there's another time that we see people getting blindfolded. And it's Faramir. Yeah. Blindfolding the hobbits as he leads them to the window of the west. Yeah, it's, I feel it's not much like they're proud and they don't want to show it as like it, secret is, also, is the reason we're still alive. It's protection. Much more like. More than like pride. But like I do agree with, with you, like they do love Lord Florian and Lloyd like so very much. But that's not why they blindfold people. It's because it's like. Uh, it's just measures of protection more than measures of love. Because, like, if there was no danger, I, I'm sure there would be, like, peacocks. Like, oh, look at our wonderful forest. Amazing, <laughs> amazing, amazing. We're so cool, we're so cool, amazing. We love it, we love it. Like, they can't do that because it's too dangerous. So that's that's why, like, I, mean, I think there's too no consequences of love. It's consequences of the outside danger. Robert Gibson. Yeah, I mean, they're fighting an enemy that could literally look into these people's minds, no matter how trustworthy they may be, and rip the, the information out of them. So, yeah, they have, a, have a reason to be cautious. Uh, geez, when you mentioned peacocks, I'm just imagining, like, Galadriel and Caleb, I forget the name. Caliborn. Caliborn. Um, they just have, like, a bunch of peacocks with them wherever they go in, in Lothlarien. Like, it's like full on medieval ruler. It's like, oh, we, we were bringing the peacock, but then they just like scream in the background. It's <laughs> like, because I don't know if you heard like a peacock scream. It's, it's like a death whale. <laughs> um, the other thing is like, I need to go, but I just want to mention like, there's parallels between Lothlorien and like the dream time with an Australian Aboriginal culture. Like, elaborate. Um, I, I would love to. But just quickly, like, it's this idea of this, like, primeval state that's like, kind of, like, lasting. Because the dream time for, like, Australian Aboriginal cultures was, like, before time. And, like, timeless in and of itself. But it also extends into the present day. Okay. Because it's kind of, like, it relates to where people go when they are dreaming. And, like, where dreams come from. And in a lot of ways, Lothlorien has all those qualities. Especially, like, we were talking about Frodo, and, like, he hears water. That's like a big thing. Like Dreamtime is this this liminal space, and Lothlorien seems to have those qualities. Thanks. Yeah. All right. And I wish I could stick around for more. Because I also have to go fairly soon, I'm just gonna throw my other two questions for this chapter at you at the same time. So the first one is relating to this quote from Haldir. Like, I really like how the elf racism thing we just talked about, like, once they've had that exchange, Haldir opens up too, and says lots of cool things, and, like, talks with them a lot. Um, and one, uh, one of the very thematic things he says is, The world is indeed full of peril, and in it there are many dark places, but still there is much that is fair, and though in all lands love is now mingled with grief, it grows perhaps the greater. So, that is a very Tolkienian thing. Um, that sentence reminded me a heck of a lot of 
the first sentence of Baron and Luthien, actually, mm-hmm. which is nice. Which is among the tales of sorrow and of ruin that come down to us from the darkness of those days, there are yet some in which amid weeping there is joy, and under the shadow of death, light that endures. <coughs> so my question with that is like how have we seen this so far? This thing. How how have we seen the fair amid the darkness? Hospitality. Yeah. The fact that we're literally wherever where this fellowship is going, someone is going to serve them food. Yeah. Um. <laughs> That's okay. a great one. <laughs> and on that, good vibes. I would add like, natural beauty to that list too. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. Moria and, and Kazarine, right? And all of that space is like, wow, it's horrible. There's a Balrog here, but also all of the history and Miramir. Yeah. They're just there still, even though there's still not one. That is, that's the third point. History. Living, like, living history natural beauty, hospitality. In a way, sometimes natural, um, like nature and like natural beauty and and history mixed together, like with Moria, and that's what it's really cool too. Like whole like, history is not encompassing what is written about and like built on it. It's like, like even for the Zanimor though, history is in, the nature. Yeah. The nature is the reason why we remember history. That's cool. Yeah, I love that. There are also, I think, um, like I think all of these three things overlap. Like if you look at history and hospitality, Elrond is a great example. Mm-hmm. Where just the form of hospitality he has is also a form of living history. And in a way I would say the Shire, because, like, I I don't know where exactly to put it, but, like, having this land of peace that is entirely ignored and ignored entirely the rest of the world um, is, like, a thing for the Hobbits and maybe to to an extent for other races, other people who know about that are, like, there's a hope, like, if, like, maybe, like, there's, like, sometimes a bit of condescending view on the hobbits of, like, they don't even realize what the heck is going on outside. But at the same time, it's like, they don't realize what the heck is going on outside. We're doing a great job at protecting this absolute <laughs> island of peace. Yeah, that's, I really like that point because, like, we saw that a lot with both Gandalf and Aragorn. Like, Aragorn's whole, like, this fat man lives a day's march of foes that would freeze his heart and he has no idea, but I wouldn't have it any other way. They're like, no, like, this is a good thing. And just the fact that, I think that there's that quote about how, like, as long as folk are, like, free enough to remain simple, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. Uh, also, just for the podcast, I think it's valuable to note that Tolkien isn't uncritical of that attitude. Like, there is, 
the hobbits do need to become more aware, and mm-hmm. ultimately that does happen. But the fact that the hobbits do need to like step up a bit also doesn't negate the fact that it's beautiful that something like the Shire can exist. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, okay, my last point before I go is so that quote comparing Lothlorien and Rivendell. In Rivendell, okay, so there's a lot of like Lothlorien is like stepping right out of the past quotes. Um, this one in particular is, it seemed to him that he had stepped over a bridge of time into a corner of the elder days and was now walking in a world that was no more. In Rivendell, there was memory of ancient things. In Lorien, the ancient things still lived on in the waking world. Evil had been seen and heard there. Sorrow had been known. The elves feared and distrusted the world outside. Wolves were howling on the woods' borders. But on the land of Lorien, no shadow lay. So I have to go, but just some things I hope you guys will talk about are like what what Lorien, how Lorien, and how Lorien is Tolkien's fairy. Yeah, um, Gabriel <laughs> and Elrond have different writers and they're really different things. Um, but Galadriel is specifically about preservation, um, which is why Lorien is like it's specifically meant to just like walk it in time. I also like <coughs> it's maybe a crazy parallel, but like there's like a formal parallel between Shire and Lorien. But with a huge difference is that both Lorien and Shire have no like have peace at the moment. But in one case, Shire it's because outsiders are protecting it, whereas, like, whereas in Loyen it's because insiders are protecting it. So in one case they are not aware of the danger inside, like the people living in Shire don't know the danger outside, but they're still protected from it because outsiders like, protect them. But in Loyen they're perfectly aware of the dangers and like that's why like they are like protecting like that's why they're keeping the peace from the inside i don't know if i make sense sorry for the podcast if i make absolutely no sense anyway there was a mention of fairies yeah fairy it's There was one line, let's see if I can find it, but it was practically straight out of all fairy stories about the nature of recovery. Um, I think it might have been, where is it? Um, but it, it, it was something like, it was the green that he had seen, that he always knew, but it was more green than he had ever seen. Mm-hmm. And, he went on with a couple like examples. Like springtime in the elder days. Like springtime in the elder days. It's mm-hmm. it's the exact thing Tolkien's trying to get at with this concept of recovery. It's you go into fairy so that you get a new fresh perspective on the world, and you come out of fairy and you look at the real world, and it's crisp, and it's, you can see it with new eyes. Mm-hmm. And seeing the world with new eyes is exactly what happens in Lothlorien. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
So that, that purpose of verity is fulfilled. It's actually interesting because the line I have under my eyes just right now is um, when they take the blind from of Gimli, Gimli Pie, and they're like, you are the first rock to behold the trees of lakes of Florence since Doomsday. It's like literally a new eye on on Lloyd from the dwarf. Yeah. Coincidence. Anyway, Amazing. I don't know. Lloyd, like, like talking about not coincidence and coincidence at the same time. So. Anyway. Yeah. Anything else people want to say on Rothmore in particular, or should we move forward? Um, we're getting more, more clues for the uh, interested observer in Aragorn's target. Yes. Yeah, all, all the clues about, like, oh, you've been there before, and like, oh, like, I, when, I, I, it's just written everywhere, and it's like, it's, it's also really sad that even though he becomes king, like, he never manages to take a vacation and go back to Lothlorien before collateral repairs. This line, I was like, okay, right? I was, when I read the line, I was just like, he, 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 he left back. his place and then he would never, like, come back alive. And I was like, why, Tolkien? Why was that necessary to tell me <laughs> he's going to die without like seeing that? that place again? Why? <laughs> it's like, this, literally, you could entirely have erased this sentence and no one would have, that would not have changed. We would changed. never have had to think about it. Yeah. We would never have had to think about it. But now we think about it and it hurts. Why, Tolkien? <laughs> You know, just that concept of location being so um, influential for memories mm -hmm. and, and for happiness to be so, that's, that's fascinating, right? Like, um, location and climate do have so much, so much to evoke memories, right? Like, mm -hmm. he was raining the other day and it just made me remember BC, living in BC, and it made me really sad. Sorry, that was a little aside. Um, but it's, it's something that's emphasized again and again in Tolkien, it's just geography, um, bringing out the deepest things in you. And I, it's, yeah, it's really sad to look at this going forward because, um, like, the, the importance of Karen Amroth to Aragorn is that um, that's where he and Arwen, like, got engaged, basically. Um, and then Arwen goes there to die later. about 
um, the whole story for Kidmate for Middle Earth. You could say like, is Lorien destroyed? Is like, is he? Can he come back because he's dead? Can he come back because the place is disappeared? Like, why can't why why does he never come back? And like, it's like as some as someone who hasn't read much more like even if i know the end of the story but like i imagine reading that for the first time you're like so many questions like what the heck is going to happen in the next chapters in the next books because is aragon what is going to happen to aragon for him never coming back like it's like like on so many levels and on so many readings it, this sentence serves so many purposes yeah. it's crazy and it's like, it's not even just, like, he never gets back there before Galadriel goes across the sea. Over, like, a hundred years of his reign, and he never goes back to Lothlorien. Ever. No vacations. Apparently. Apparently. The phrasing on it is, is really interesting, too. Um, that he came there never again as living men. I was just trying to figure out what what that implies. Well, because typically you would think that it would mean like his body was brought there or something, but we know that's not what it means. So does that mean he got like a special pass to go meet up with Arwen when she went there to die to go like yeah travel the laws of madness with her? <coughs> Maybe in a way like um really big extent but like if you go into romantic uh, typical imagery you know like I gave you my heart and you gave me yours maybe in a way by going to die there I went to Argon's heart there like not literally but you know yeah like Arwen's presence in killing Arwen after Aragorn's death, it's somehow Aragorn's not as living man, but he's he's yeah. there too. That's kind of how I took it. Yeah. Yeah. That's still success. Anyway, anyhow, it's also weird because he did take vacations and he went like basically all the way to the Shire at one point. Yeah. Why didn't? At one point, call that a vacation. That was a business trip. He <laughs> could have stopped on the way. He could have. He probably had business to do in Norway. He should have gone. Oh my God! He started the mountain, misty mountains, and then crossed over in Rivendell. That's what he should have done, right? What was he thinking? Just not romantic enough. Nope. They could have had a nice moment. He got into middle age, and he was just completely like business mindset. He's like, you're gonna get there quickly. He started balding. I mean, the thing is that. Who is this? Is this Frodo? Aragorn? No, we're talking about Aragorn. Okay, we're talking about Aragorn and Karen Amroth and how sad it is that he never goes back. But the thing is that to get to the Shire, you don't have to go through Lothlorien at all. You don't have to. But it's more efficient. You don't have to. To go through, like, because because then you'd have to either cross Carathras or go through Moria. Yeah, that's right. You could take like, you a can detour. Just, you can go... 
like logically he could just have gone up to Lorien and then come back down on a nice little jaunt anytime he wanted to. But to get to the Shire, it makes way more sense to go through the gap of Rohan. It's just way safer. Logically, when you have a life Anyhow, let's move forward. Let's talk about Galadriel and Celeborn. Um, how is Celeborn characterized? I actually want to start with him. Because he's really interesting. In the movies, he like just stands there and he's literally not a person at all. It's probably better that way. Sadly, he's not such a good actor that they just wasted on him. <laughs> he's just kind of a fool for somebody that age human-wise. Yeah, it kind of just feels like he's just there to look pretty and support. Well, for a change, I mean. <laughs> I mean, yes, but at the same time, no. Like, Celeborn is distinctly characterized um, as having a separate strength to Galadriel, mm-hmm. as well as a complementary one. Like, you get the sense that in this, in this first encounter, that even though Galadriel is the person who knows things... Celeborn is the outward-facing aspect of them as a duo. He's the diplomat. Mm-hmm, like, yeah. Well, he's he's the the one that gives gifts. Yeah, he's he's the gift giver. So that actually is directly parallels not Galadriel and Sauron, who we see later on in this chapter as being like constantly in, in conflict. Um, but Celeborn and Sauron as being constantly in conflict because they're both gifting. They they're both gift givers. Also, I find it interesting because it's like Lord Celeborn and Galadriel's Lady of Florian, as they are introduced, I think. And so it's subtle, but it means that, yeah, Galadriel is the Lady of Florian and Florian only. And it's just further you point that Celeborn is the outsider, like not the outsider, but like the outside dealer. Even if the world is dealing with the outside world, he's the face of the couple outside. He's the like foreign diplomacy, foreign affairs, and she's the diplomatic. Yeah. To make an academia metaphor, Caliborn is the uh, the applied physicist, and Galadriel is the theorist. I think this is true. Kind of. Yeah. Um, question. Yeah. So. The hair of the lady was of deep gold, and the hair of the Lord Celeborn was of silver, long and bright. Is that supposed to be the sign of the moon that they're paralleling? Um, uh, and therefore the trees? Very possibly. Like, that's the fun thing about Lorien, is that it's it's very, uh, very aesthetically on point. It all co- comes together. We have an aesthetic, it's silver and gold, we do not stray from it at any point. Mm-hmm. The last like, is it Galadriel remembering the trees? Because she was born in the years of the trees, guys. Yeah, and I mean, potentially. She saw uh-huh. she saw Kelborn with her silver hair. It was like, that's the one. <laughs> was just like pursuing him after that just for the hair matchup. I mean, she lived with Thingol. That's when he talks about their love story. <laughs> <laughs> she lived with Thingol for a long time, just so she could be around <laughs> Which honestly would take patience, even if Melian was there. <laughs> like, even if you were learning great things from Melian all the time, still living with Thingol would probably be kind of a trial. <laughs> yeah. I, I 
find it interesting. Like when I read that passage, I was like the golden hair of Calandria and the silver hair of Calborn. I would have expected the other way around if I hadn't have read that. Why? I don't know. It it just it mm-hmm. felt like that's what it would have been. But I mean, when I hear it, it makes perfect sense. It's just that's not what I was expecting. I don't know why. Um, I guess I was going to say Celeborn's got silver in his mane. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's. <laughs> but I mean, I, I can understand that she's got that connection with um, the knight, and especially the somewhere else up in the sky. Yeah. That's true. But all elves have that. Well, but she's got the ring that's got the actual connection to the. The ring the doesn't actually have any connection to Arendelle. No. Mm, no. I don't know. It, it's not not physically. It's it's paralleled kind of at the end of this chapter. Right, but there's a lot of imagery of light from that star, uh, like shining on the ring, and Sam sees instead of the ring, he sees the star. Well, he thinks he he, he sees a star. It's not a rendel. I think it's a rendel. Well, yeah, specifically like, yeah, the well, rays of a rendel. I think. Uh, like like the ring or something. Yeah, so it's there. Um, but that's not what Sam sees. Sam just thinks he sees a star through her fingers. Yeah. So Randall's like hanging around because it does that, um, and because like it's going to be important in the next chapter, right? The fact that Randall is there. I think that preservation element is important too. Mm-hmm. So somewhere else preserving the like the lost light. But Galadriel, as compared to like a lot, to a lot of other elves, is almost almost has like a lot of dawn imagery. You don't see that in elves really at all. Any imagery that connects them to the sun or the morning. But Galadriel has that, both with that, like, goldenness and with the sense that Lorien is, like, the Elder Days. That, like, stop right there at the beginning of the world. Which is really interesting. And that actually also makes sense because um, elves have, like, female view of, feminine view of the sun and, like, masculine view of the moon. Of the moon, yeah. Yeah, that's opposite a lot of earthly cultures. Yep. Yeah. Except in Japan. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, and uh, Japanese. Like, but, Japanese like, the German could have been an influence. Yeah, that's Yeah, in the language, what I mean is, like, in German, it's, like, the sun is feminine gender. Like, like the moon is masculine, whereas in most Roman languages, it's the opposite. So it's always yeah. confusing to everyone. But but like this is almost certainly Tolkien's inspiration, right? Yeah. Like he would have it's probably the same in Anglo Saxon, right? Yeah. Um, or yeah. I mean like a in the personification. I actually only remember Amitras. I have no idea I do not do you remember the oh, God yeah, of the Moon is uh, the moon in the Japanese mythology? Because I know Amaterasu is like characterized as female, right? Yeah, she's the goddess of the sun. But yeah, anyway, 
definitely yes. not Tolkien's inspiration. So <laughs> let's yes. go back to Galadriel and Celeborn. Yeah. Um, the other thing about Celeborn to know is that, like, he's not a fool. Like, he does one wrong thing, which is he's a little iffy about Gimli. A little iffy about Gimli because now he knows that there's a Balrog under him, and he's like, "Are you kidding me?" That's <laughs> not. <laughs> He kind of, he kind of pulls the table. I mean, he wasn't exactly the like like his words are way over the top and harsh, right? Like he wants to kick Gimli out. He wanted them to like separate Gimli from the Fellowship and leave him on the border of the woods. It's just wild for somebody who's supposed to be ancient and wise and yeah. have lived through some stuff just to like. Like had I known that the dwarves had stirred up this evil in Moria again, I would have forbidden you to pass the northern borders, you and all that went with you. You know, like that's yeah. So like, there's, I don't think there's it's that out of out of out of line. There's that, but he's been doing that. He does. They do that to most people. Like notably, this isn't a thing that he would just do to Gimli. It would change his his idea in this sense, but he would do it to the whole party because there might be a Balrog. And also, that's what they do to most people who enter Lorien. It's not like they take most people who enter Lorien and they're like, yeah, just come to Karis Galavon. Most of them, they're like, hi, you're in Lorien. Bye. <laughs> Out you go. <laughs> that's if you're like, if you're in Lorien, it happens or to they be just like, oh, you're in Lorien. Yeah. See my arrow in your face. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not like, like, there are things to be said about Lorien's isolationist policy. I'm not giving him a pass. <laughs> I refuse. <laughs> But it's explicitly noted, even by Galadriel, that, like, there's, that the Celeborn is one of the wise, is in fact one of the wisest people left in Middle-earth. And one of the things that I think denotes Celeborn as wise is that he immediately realizes his mistakes and rectifies them instead of clinging to them, which is important. And it's a good quality in people in general. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't actually change. He's just with. You say that, <laughs> but you have no evidence that he no. doesn't change, and it's not like he kicks anyone out after this. I do give Kelborn a pass. I mean, yeah. But also, like, given the I'm situation, not giving him a pass. I just, I just I'm giving him commendation him, for learning from his mistakes. I just think everyone gives him too much of a pass compared to Thingol or. Does Thingol learn from his mistakes? Well, he gets killed for it. I mean, that's that's, <laughs> that's not yeah, but that's after like five chances where he could have learned from his mistakes. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the version you're looking at, I suppose. Okay, <laughs> like Thingol has chances here. Kellenborn <laughs> learns immediately. It takes him like two minutes. And we're always so hard on Thranduil, but he's he turns out to be a nice guy. I mean, I've got I've got. A, Variety of opinions on Thranduil. Yeah. But I'm not. Thranduil isn't. doesn't make as many mistakes as Thingol. Put it that way. <laughs> Ranking elf lords <laughs> by number of dumb mistakes they make when people walk into their cave. <laughs> well, now you know what your presentation is going to be about. <laughs> oh, I had other plans, but I guess I could talk about ranking elf lords. I mean, incidentally, I would do that. the best one is Elrond. There are no other options. I mean, I, I would do that, but I've already been pressured into doing the uh, comparative historical linguistics of 
Tolkien's languages, so I don't know. Oh, there you go. See, for we've all got plans. There's actually a class that's going to be taught about that. Isn't, isn't that just general commons? I don't that, know. That's what I heard. It was. Anyway. Yeah. Anyhow, um, so those are some thoughts on uh, elf lords. Let's talk about uh, the visions that Galadriel offers to the people when they first show up. Um, I think this temptation is a, is the one that parallels Galadriel and Sauron and, and sets them against each other. Um, because it's it's the same thing as what the ring does. It just offers you something that you want that's like you just desire. Um, what do you think other people see of Sam sees a garden? Like, what do you think the other members of the Fellowship see that Galadriel offers them? I would say probably a silly asterisk in peace. I would say not just in peace, but in glory, you know? Like, this is the temptation that's eventually going to lead a contract kind of. ring. Um, um, and he wants to rebuild it. Former maybe, Gondor. Maybe even Osgiliath. Mm. Well, like, he's linked to an asterisk, but, like, only because of the Nazi's <coughs> down. Anyway, Gondor and glory. Yeah, well, rebuilding Gondor in general. And all the cities. On the other hand, I would challenge that because these visions aren't what the ring could offer you. These things aren't things necessarily. Oh, yeah, like what you could have instead of doing the quest. Yeah, it's like what you could be doing if you weren't caught up here, mm-hmm. right? But Boromir specifically questions the validity of that vision, right? That's like, true. Boromir said she was offering what she pretended to have the power to give. Yeah. But I think maybe that might be that might not be so much Gondor being rebuilt as Boromir at the head of a vanquishing army. Mm-hmm. Right? Less the success Boromir rebuilt as Boromir with a crowd of people behind him succeeding. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would like say the that it amounts to the same thing, but... Yeah. Yeah. But instead, instead of it being the outcome, because Boromir's not thinking in the same way, like Sam and his hobbit hole and his garden are something that he could be doing now instead of being with the ring, but it would also rely on the like them having won, on the power having been defeated. So. <clears throat> For Pippin, I would say <clears throat> adventures, but in the Shire. So, like, not actually dangerous adventures. Because he seems still young, and, like, he says to Elrond, like, you have to put me in a sack if you want to get me out of this travel. I'm traveling. But at the same time, he's really aware of the dangers. And I think what would tempt him is like a nice travel, like he's not gonna get killed every two minutes. Mm-hmm. I think Aragorn's his army anyway. Yeah. Legolas? That's a hard one. Like, Legolas could simply be either. invited to stay. He seems so excited to be there. Maybe. Actually, I think it would probably be Murku. I think it probably would, but yeah. as restored, right? Greedy the Great, yeah. <coughs> but my joke was that it was just the Anna Chorma with that shit. Why not? 
Well, he would not have by that. Like he would have said, like I, I have a better chance of succeeding anyway if I go with the fellowship than if I go back to Mukun and try to have my dad train me. Look, I don't think so, Thran will dislikes his son. Like, no sense that Thran will dislikes his own people, just people outside of his kingdom, in particular dwarves and people who try to tell him what to do. Which may have been his son. <laughs> Especially dwarves who try to ambush them while they're feasting. <laughs> yeah, that's to be fair. Especially starving <laughs> people in the forest. He's not a fan of those. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I just want to be careful. I feel like the the temptation's probably a bit more to do with um, power and um, some sort of control. Um, and despite what Sam said, but one because everyone was hiding it except Sam, which makes it seem like Sam was just the most innocent. If you want to say that, but two. Because what is Galadriel's own temptation? It's power and control, right? But why did she not stay in Valinor? Because she wanted to go to the kingdom. Why did she not go to the west? Because she wanted to go to the kingdom. And was her temptation to bring? I could, I could become this glorious queen. And so I feel like that's prob- she's probably going to be leaning into that. In I disagree. Um, and I think I, I disagree because Galadriel is. Like, her whole thing is that she knows what's going on in other people's minds, right? When you have perfect insight into what other people want the most, um, you're not going to, you're, you're far less likely to make the mistake of thinking that what other people want is what you want, right? So, maybe if Galadriel was trying to extrapolate what other people wanted based on her own experience, she would make that mistake. But she's not. She's looking into their minds and seeing and dredging out the thing that they are most desperate to have. Then, if that's all it... But, like, if, if Mary and Pippin just want adventures in the Shire and Legolas just wants a green murderer, then why, why are they hiding it? That seems bizarre to me. I mean, I think because it's intensely personal, right? Like, even Sam... Even Sam's desire is, is an intensely personal one. Like, when Mary says that he thinks he saw something similar, like, the first thing that I thought is that Mary is thinking of, like, a girl at home. That's most likely in my mind. Right? Because, um, like, Sam's like, I was, I was just home. I had everything that I wanted at home, like, a nice little house and a garden, and it was good. And Mary says, that's almost exactly what I thought, except there was, well, actually, I'm not going to tell you that. Which makes sense when you're a young man among other young men. Um, who all know you and probably the girl that you're thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> so I really do think that, like, it's just something that's intensely personal. Um, I kind of wonder was Gimli there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Gimli was there. Um, he was the most kind of, like, firm about my choice will remain secret and no one knew myself. But then that's also not about, not so much about whether Gimli is willing to speak it, so much as it is about Gimli's understanding of Galadriel, right? He's like, I knew that whatever I chose in my head, she wouldn't tell anyone what that was. And that's that sense that Gimli and Galadriel have, where Gimli is like, hey, you can uh, trust an elf with things, maybe, mm-hmm. on occasion. What, what were you thinking of? 
Give me some more. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Going back to more of the following, maybe. Yeah. You know, like, it was nice that's it, it's fine. Or maybe just like a reunion with all of his family and like the whole clan back here. So I'd Honestly, like. Honestly, even restored. Yeah. Right? I'd like back to the ancient days. Yeah. yeah. Them, like them driving out the Balrog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Having gone down to the river to drink that. I think that's a really interesting insight into like who the characters are, the ability to kind of like gauge what they're wanting most. Um, let's actually like include Bad Bogner's reaction because like his reaction makes the most sense to me. He he reacts really angrily at the fact he's been reading the night, like. He's not stating directly that it's because she's been reading the night and he's saying like it's because she's been tempting them. But at the same time, like, how violated would you feel if someone could read your mind? Just like that. I think that's also what comes out of what he, of his reaction is like, she was freaking in my mind. I could not stop her. She just entirely overpowered me. I'm like, that's not respectable. Yeah. You should not do that to people. And I think that's why he sees her like as a witch, sorceress, whatever. Until Aragon is like, oh, oh, calm down. She's good. Or he was like, fine for you to say. She does the same, she gives you the same vision every time. (laughs) (laughs) And Barney doesn't know yet. And it's like, and yeah, she's gonna be your grandmother in law, so yeah, okay, be nice to her. Especially when you're Boromir and you've got more. Boromir's got more to hide, right? Mm-hmm. Boromir's the person who is kind of experiencing this temptation of the ring really strongly, um, and probably feel is offended by even the concept of betraying Frodo, mm-hmm. even if he eventually is going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like there'd be a certain, a certain level of offense in him too, not just at the fact that like his mind is being read, but that that puts his honor in question when consciously he's he's trying to resist that temptation. That could be what he's been offered, right? Yeah, the ring. He may have been offered the ring, um, and like just he's just so angry with the fact mm-hmm. that someone knows now that that name tempts him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do we have any textual evidence for that? That so being I've, tempted? Yeah, that's something I've noticed on this reading is that there's a lot of baggage I have from the film adaptation, mm-hmm. but I haven't found any textual I evidence. I think this for is it. the best evidence of it. Maybe. Well, I mean, maybe in retrospect, but like up till now. Yeah, up until like. Like, I don't. I think the only time it comes up is in the council, right? Where he. Says that they should just use it, and then everyone says no, we can't. And he agrees. He's like, okay. Yeah. Let's so it's it's like it is it is a retrospect thing. Yeah. But I think this set this this fact the fact that Boromir gets really angry. Like you're supposed to, you're supposed to accept in reading this that Galadriel is good, right? There's nothing about Galadriel that's supposed to really make you be like maybe she's actually evil and Boromir's right. Um, so the fact that we are supposed to know that Galadriel is good. And Boromir 
is the one who continues to feel really iffy about her. This is actually your first big clue that something is actually going on there. Also, in the middle of his two rants about Galadriel, yeah, there's this couple of lines like, and as for Frodo, he would not speak. The Boromir pressed him with question. She held you long in her gaze, Rinderer. He said, yeah. and for. I think that's the first time he re- like he refers to Frodo as Ringbearer, and he's like exceedingly curious about someone who's exceedingly evasive about answering his question. It's like, yeah, that is a point. Like, yeah, as you say, like maybe it's not what sh- she offered him, but at this point, even if like textually, up until then, Boromir was like cool with the ring. Like, so like the thing on Karen Caradrasa uh, happening is like entirely film adaptation thing mm-hmm. like uh, that's when it starts that's when like maybe it's because coming going through Moria maybe in the absence of Gandalf that reduces this influence I don't know but that's when like something start to slowly shift within him mm-hmm. yeah. that's another notable thing about Gandalf actually so I looked up the three rings I was looking at this, and they all have different abilities. But one of the things that Gandalf does is it gives people hope. Like, very specifically, the Ring of Fire, like, its more metaphorical ability is to, like, lessen dread um, and to give people hope. And so, losing Gandalf is probably actually really tangible in that sense to the fellowship. They're not just breathing. And in Lothlorien, like it says here, they're protected by Lothlorien and its general like, sense of preservation. And as soon as they leave, they're going to feel that, all that utter weight of the ring and their quest come down on them because Gandalf's not there anymore. And his ring isn't there anymore. So that's really interesting, too, is that, yeah, the, um, Gandalf not being present would make Boromir more vulnerable to those temptations just by default. Yeah, cool. What about Frodo? What do you think he saw? Yeah. I think he saw himself at home with Bilbo. That's, yeah. Or, or, or I mean, even though. Yeah, I thought kind of Rivendell, actually. When I, although I think was tired. I think he saw himself rid of the ring. Yeah. And that's not a problem anymore. But that sucks because of all the members of the fellowship, he's the only one who's sworn to finish that quest. Yeah. And, and, also, the o- and also the only person who's never free of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but well, I think he see like wherever he sees himself, it's with Bilbo and free of the ring. Mm-hmm. Those are the important bits. Maybe Let's that's touch. That's maybe why he offered the ring to Galadriel. Mm-hmm. That's maybe his response to that temptation. It's like, like I want to be free of it, but I don't want to just throw it somewhere and have no- whoever takes it. Use the most powerful, maybe that's the best choice. And she's like, on her trip, and then she's like, nope, bad idea. Probably shouldn't do that. Keep it, I'm sorry, but yeah, nope. <laughs> yes. Um, I want to go into Mirror of Galadriel, but first I want to really, really briefly touch on um, the fellowship reason for Gandalf. Again, some really distinct things happening. Uh, Frodo and Sam both write poetry again. Poetry.
after he's heroic, we continue to build Frodo and Sam up as the heroic members of this company. Um, it's also noticeable, notable that despite the fact that all the other elves are singing, um, Legolas refuses to, right? Mm -hmm. Which again puts him in the puts, puts him in a position in this hierarchy of the fellowship and how important they are and the kinds of destiny that they have. Um, I don't know how much of Legolas going away a lot and hanging a lot, but around with the Galadriel is his part of prison. He's like, Gandalf was in the fellowship. He's not. So when I'm in the fellowship, I see how much he's not. But when I'm with the other elf, like, of course he's not. He was not supposed to be with the other elves. Yeah. So, yeah. I think there's another sense there, too, which is that's related again to just how, like, inexperienced Legolas is. Mm -hmm. Legolas has never been to Lorien before. He's only ever heard stories about it. Mm -hmm. um, and he might never come back. Mm -hmm. So, like, this is my literal one chance to see the golden days of the elves that like that there are people who still remember like Legolas lives among younger elves than like Elrond or Galadriel um, but they're still old compared to him they've still got more of a sense of the elder days than he does this is an elf who just has no sense of the elder days and probably feels really cut off from everybody else because of it. He's a really young elf. I think he's thought that he's like possibly the youngest elf in Middle ever, Earth. or at least in Middle Earth. Yeah, he's the youngest elf in Middle Earth. I'm pretty sure that's we like we don't know of anyone younger than him. I'm trying to remember if there's any way that Gandalf says that, for, or that Tolkien says that for sure. No, he never pins down Legolas's exact age. Yeah, he never pins down his exact age, but I don't know if he ever says that there's someone younger than him. Right, yeah, I've got a few contenders. It would be surprising if there were. There are lots of guesses. I'll pull up at the end of this if you look, because I really want to know. I'll send you the uh, thing that I have that does estimations of Legolas' age. Um, but what does Frodo's like poetry tell us about Gandalf? It's actually really interesting. He's really good with fireworks. No, that's what Sam's poetry tells me. Sorry, it's a pretty big distinction. Frodo's poetry is all about the burden and hardship. Yep. It's he comes like in in Frodo's poetry, Gandalf sounds like a paladin, so paradoxical being. He's like swift in anger, but quick to love. He's an old man, but at the same time, he's a lot of wisdom, but he also fights with his friend with everyone, and like, who is this guy? Like, there's like so many aspects of him. What is he in? in <coughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you put your finger on it. That constant back and forth between, um, lines about Gandalf as the heroic figure, um, and lines about Gandalf as, as a weird old man. Yeah. Um. And with emphasis on, again, his loneliness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he knows everyone, he's friends with everyone, but 
who's not like anyone. I like the stanza about um, talking with everyone, the third stanza. Yeah. The dwarf and hobbit, elves and men, the mortal and immortal folk with bird on bough and beast and den in their own secret tongues he spoke. I think like Gandalf's primary role, I would say, you know, is, is as, a, as a communicator, as a prophet, as a messenger. Ambassador. Ambassador, that's a good word. Yep. Um, and so he has to be a linguist um, and be able to talk with everybody, including cannibals. Um, you know, like he has all these spectacular strengths and powers as is described in other stanzas, but his primary role is ambassador and gathering people to know which he himself said. Yeah. Yeah, regularly. He's also like, he's a vala, he's a admirer of Amina, right? So, um, he's, uh, mm-hmm. em- empathetic. Yeah. He's, he's there to like bear that, the weight of the sorrow, sorrow of these people. In a sense, that's, that, that's the load that he bears is, all the weight of grief of the people that he loved. Um, which is what makes talking about grieving for Gandalf, who's a figure of grief himself, so interesting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just that you're grieving for someone you lost, it's that someone else has been carrying a lot of that burden on your behalf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're bearing not only the weight of Gandalf's loss, but like slow dying of the world is suddenly upon you. Anyhow, all of the consequences of Gandalf dying are like immense. I've just always been fascinated just by Gandalf. Like the way he functions in the book, but also just as a character. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I always like when, when I read the chapter, it just feels like the light has just gone out and now they're wandering in the darkness and they don't know where to turn. Sam first. Okay. He's so fixated on the, the, the hope and positivity that Gandalf brought. Yeah. I think that's really important. It is, yes. Gandalf's just best. <laughs> he wins the game, man. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to elaborate? No, that, that's okay, all. That's wins. Okay, that's there's all no game to win. He just wins it. I see. Okay. I mean, I guess he sort of wins the game with being a good person. He wants to be my wife. I just have a question. Like, when he committed, I was thinking, like, the pair of Frodo and Sam actually kind of become Gandalf in a way. Because one bears the hope and the other one bears the sorrows. It's a good pair, I don't know. That's very true. So that's why is that like Frodo cannot leave alone because like Gandalf is not only about like getting all the grief from the end, it's also about bringing hope through that. And Sam is the person who's always like, so gotta make sure I've got enough food to get there and back. Gotta make sure I carry all these pots along with me just in case we find something that's actually can actually cook. It's like Gandalf the Grey in black and white, the, the mm-hmm. dark. It's. 
in the end, Gandalf's a true hero. He's just separated in two people. <laughs> I'm just making that up. But yeah, you're making a lot of good points about the kind of the characterizations that people take upon themselves. You're right. And that's a good point too, talking to about what Gandalf did and that again his ring of power and what it was able to do. Is that it was a direct a direct counter or counter counterbalance to his function as a liar. So that would be interesting, like because like you did mention Gandalf's a grey was basically like a mix of grey and white. Uh, black and white. But like that would be interesting to see if when he becomes Gandalf the White, does he lose his, like, part of him bearing the grace of all the people? Yeah. Makes sense. It and I mean, that would be something to look at when you're going into the next couple books. Yes. Yeah. To be talking about how Gandalf changes when he becomes Gandalf the White. Um, <laughs> but I don't think there's any indication that Gandalf loses that immense capacity to be grieving for the world. Like, he's definitely still doing that. I think he will for it because I'm just saying because it's. We could definitely sort of speculate as to what it is that we that he loses when we get to that point, but no, I don't think that's the metaphor kind of breaks down when he turns into Ken of the White. Yes. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about the mirror of Galadriel. What happens here? What's going on? So, I have no idea what the mirror is. Like, what is it accessing such that it can prophesy and remember and all of that? You know, that's. It, it, it doesn't remind me of anything else in the Legendarium off the top of my head. It reminds me of Galadriel. <laughs> sure, like the, the living memory, but even she doesn't have the gift of foresight. You know, that works for the past, but yeah. it doesn't work for the prophecies. I could have sworn that there was, like, Galadriel had, like, a prophesizing thing. Huh? A lot of people have at least temporary foresight. Um, it's not something that's, out, that's necessarily outside of the realm of what Galadriel might be able to do. I know we talked specifically about, like, the people with foresight and when it happens earlier in the book. Yeah, we talked about it because um, Frodo has one thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's also something that Elrond is capable of to a limited extent. Um, so it's not something that you could say is completely outside of what Galadriel might be able to do, just that we have no other indication that she has foresight. The problem that ties it a bit more, like, um, it's not like an incredibly refined technique or science like we have in the Numenorians, right? Like the Numenorians have things like seem like magic, like the Palantiri, um, and this seems like magic, but in a very different way. And something that the Numenorians never had possible prophecy tools, did they? I don't think so. I actually wonder, like, saying the Mirror of Galadriel has foresight possibilities because maybe Galadriel has foresight possibilities, uh, capacities, mean that the mirror is basically mirroring Gal Galadriel's capacity. <coughs> yeah. 
but how she presents it sounds like she's not the one like she she's in the same place as Frodo and Sam compared to the mirror she's like the power of the mirror comes from something beyond her yeah mm-hmm. and because it works with water and you mentioned that Ulmo is everywhere how much of it like not necessarily Ulmo himself but how much of that comes from the Valar through Ulmo see that's an option right like um, Mandos has this type of power. And also because like it's not only the water, it's also the stars. Like, because I don't think it works at during the day. Like it seems that she has to do it during the night when the stars mm-hmm. reflect in the mirror. Mm-hmm. So those two things are linked to the Valor, particularly because the water that goes through Lothlorien goes then to the sea. There's like the story of Nimrod that we were mentioning earlier, like literally going to the sea and going to the west, back to the Valar, and this water of Ulmo being everywhere and Ulmo still being in every like uh, bodies of water in Middle Earth. I think there's like something beyond Galadriel in this mirror. She's she's herself surprised by what can happen. I was just looking it up, and there's no information of like where the Galadriel comes from anywhere. Um, on the other hand, it's basically just spying, which is why it's so unpredictable, right? Um, she's you. You can't necessarily like like it's an unpredictable divination, but it is just a divination where you're like looking for something, but you can't. You don't have control over what you're going to be shown. Um, she also can command it, which to me means it can't be connected to greater powers. I don't think she's strong enough to, in any sense, can command Ulmo or any of the dialogue. Um, but it does seem like it's a power outside of herself, some, some sort anyway. But I wouldn't connect it to them just because of the way she can command it to bend to her, her will. Reveal specific things. To me, it felt like almost just like a piece of technology that just takes it, like it takes the power from the sunlight and the water, or the, the starlight and the water, and she uses a bit of herself in this sort of like an augmentation thing. Which I, yeah, I mean, I can't really think of any other thing that it could be unless it is just her, which I suppose maybe, is possible. Maybe we can try to figure it out through the ring, right? Because the ring is being activated. Zendir, right? Yeah. Um, and then yeah, it was the ring of air, which protects yeah. and shrouds. Um, but the Elvish rings never boost. They're not a power boost, right? They don't deal with the individual. They deal with um, the things around the individual and some sort of nurturing, healing, or preserving. And kind of. That's what they were made for. That's what Celebrimbor did, right? Like, he did direct opposition to the Rings of Sauron. They're not boosting the individual themselves. They... The abilities that they have... <coughs> are not... Yeah, they don't just focus the abilities of the people who are granting them. Um, 
if you gave the Ring of Fire back to Kieran, then Kieran would do the same thing with it as Gandalf does, which is use it to inspire more people and potentially make fire. (laughs) (laughs) Potentially. Potentially. We don't know if that's something that Gandalf can do or if that's something that is directly a power of the ring. It's just a coincidence. Um, So, it's possible that the ring has nothing to do with this. It's entirely Galadriel's power. It's possible that it's Galadriel's power that the ring can help her with as well. Like, just because it's not made to be a power boost doesn't mean it can't also contribute to making your own powers more powerful. Yep. If they're connected, right? Um, and it's also possible that this is something that you could, she could only do with the ring. But we don't know because we don't see it literally anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's not true. I was reading just like when I was looking this up. Um, the one other thing that you find out is that Arwen watches Aragorn on his travels, presumably through some uh, through a similar ability. It's not really said how she does that, besides the fact that she can apparently see what he's doing. Okay, tell me what you guys figure out. Okay. But in any case, I don't think we're going to get an answer to what the Mirror of Galadriel is. What does it do? Like, what, like, narratively, besides show Sam and Frodo a future, what does it tell us about Sam and Frodo? Those two are like there's something about those two from the story. Those there's the only two who watch in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Like in a way, Frodo is like duh, because he's a ringer. But if if you haven't caught up, all the hints Tolkien just throw at your face before, it's like why Sam? Except that he's just following. Frodo like a puppy, like, since when following someone like a puppy gives you the right to watch and get a first mirror, you know? Yeah. And then you realize, like, it's actually, like, really important because through this vision, Sam is more than, in, at, more than at any point tempted to go back to the, to the Shire and, 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 like, help and do something. And... That's when he decides he's not going to go back until the job is done. Yeah. Even though he knows now, he now knows much more about what it means, that not going back means that mm-hmm. maybe his family is going to die or be enslaved, like his friends do, even the stupid Sandyman. Like, Shire is going to be destroyed, but I. I promised Gandalf I would go with Mr. Frodo and no matter what I'm gonna go. <laughs> but at this point you almost see him like just literally packing his stuff on the spot and going back to the Shire. It's also gonna foreshadow Sam's greater temptation in 
right? You're, you're going to see Sam later on when Sam has the ring, the temptation that he has is that restoration of the natural world, the entire world of garden, um, which is a direct, first of all, solution to what he sees in his fear and also what he thinks Galadriel would do with her, with the ring. And that focus too on his home, like this, you're you're already seeing a distinction between Sam, who's going to be able to go home in the end, and Frodo, who isn't, because um, Sam's visions are about what's going on in the Shire, and Frodo's are not. Frodo's are entirely focused on his quest. Uh-huh. Well, we're at five minutes too. So, do you have any last thoughts on this chapter? The mirror. Galadriel's temptation, anything. Sauron is still a Loki friend. Mm-hmm. Cat what? eye, yellow cat eye. Sauron yep. is still a confirmed. <coughs> and Gimli and Legolas actually start to become friends. And even though most elf, most Galadriel don't speak Western, Gimli is going along with Legolas. And trusting he's not going to translate bullshit. Who don't speak Western? <laughs> uh, most the of the guys don't speak okay. Western. Like some of them do, like Hadley and stuff, but most of them actually don't, and that's why they don't hang out with the fellowship. But like Legolas don't, doesn't care because he speaks Elvish anyway, so he goes there and he's like, "Hey, Gimli, you come with me." Can you imagine though? He shows up. He's just got a terrible Quenya accent, like absolutely rough. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe it would, okay, no, I cannot consider that. Maybe it's, it would sound to have like it's a Quebecois uh, elf. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. like it's not love because he's a king of Thren, like the son of Threnville, but I understood why it's been a while. Like it's actually been a while we haven't met the Northern Covens. <laughs> Try not to love like next diplomatic visit from Stonehill because it would be hard. <laughs> that, that would be bad. Anyway, <laughs> it's like Travis starts to speak in like half of the course, like trying not to love. It's like, what is happening? Like, what is this walking thing? 